Hi, everyone. This is my podcast voice, and this is Jenny Gartwa, and you're listening to The Sassholes. Welcome to Sassholes, oh. a show dedicated to issues in the software as a service industry. We are revenue apps with a edge. Jamie, Jason, KG, myself, Pete have a combined 100 years of making interesting decisions. Please subscribe to our weekly newsletter, and you can always buy us a beer on Patreon slash Sassholes. Today, our guest is Jen Iguarta. How'd I do? You almost had it after all that practice. Today, our, Igar- t- Today our guest is Jen Iguarta. Jen is the CEO at Go Nimbly, the revenue operations consultancy that helps SaaS companies drive more revenue by creating a frictionless and human buying experience. She's an expert in marketing and sales alignment. Jen saw early on all the gaps in the ways companies operate and how they translate into a difficult buying experience by showing operators and their teams how to identify operational gaps, transform the way they work. Jen and Go Nimbly have helped dozens of high growth companies adopt a customer-centric approach to growing their revenue. But before we get to Jen, we got a sponsor for the show. Hey, NeuroNoodle, parents and athletes get a doodle their noodle. That's a brain map before the season starts, so you have a baseline to compare it to in case something happens. You get a physical every year, right? We'll get a brain checkup now before that season starts. Schedule an appointment now at NeuroNoodle.com. It only takes 20 minutes to get the data you need to ensure the quality of your athlete's future life. All right, Jen, this is up to you. Do you want to hear a dad joke, yes or no? Yes. How many paranoids does it take to change a light bulb? This is actually not a bad joke. This is probably who wants to know. Is it a pair? Who wants to know? (laughs) Two. Leave us some comments at our blog. It's asshole. Not getting it, are you? Who wants to know? Hold on. We got. Um, Very good. She was still (laughs) guessing. Like All right, two. so we, we, who we'll wants to the, know? Leave me alone. <laughs> stay off my lawn. All right, we'll keep the that joke. Is, so by the way, stay off my lawn is the Pete joke of the year because that's a, he doesn't leave his cave. <laughs> Whatever, Jamie. Go go burn that expense account. Mm-hmm. All right, leave us some comments on our blog at sassholes.net. Shout outs, KG. You got anybody? I have a few, actually. First things first, I want to congratulate Jason Nazar, a serial entrepreneur here in Los Angeles, for starting a new position as professor at UCLA. I guess it's just so simple. Whoa. I guess it's just so simple. You just become a professor. Happy birthday to my buddy, Babak Danad, vice president of people at Contrast Security, one of my fraternity brothers 30 years ago. My God. And uh, now he's vice president of people. Wow. Uh, congratulations to David Altman for being promoted to enterprise relationship director, team lead at Tau Ooh, they're in the talent acquisition space. You you guys are familiar yeah. there. And awesome. then, uh, yeah, that's right. And that's exactly correct. Yep. And then um, congratulations to Bartley Billings. We used to work together at ZipRecruiter for securing a new position as account executive at Node. That's it. That's all she wrote. Yeah. The funny thing is about Calru, I believe, because they, they sell the same product. They're like a smaller version of Indeed, a little bit more specialized, right? It's like job search engine stuff. I believe they stay in the same building as Indeed. They do. Isn't that crazy? 
No, you're, you're, uh, they actually were in California. A friend of mine who used to work for me became their head of sales in California. And for tax reasons, they moved to Austin about 10 years ago and they posted up directly in the Indeed office building so that they can pick people off. Yeah, I used to sell, uh, we used to sell these things with the, this banner team at CareerBuilder for my niche sites to the CEO there. He used to sell AIU online sponsorship leads. It was the worst mm. business. Uh, <laughs> I, by the way, I have no shout outs since we did shout outs yesterday on our Are podcast. Are you sure? You don't want to put them in now? Yeah. Alex Wente, happy birthday. Christina Sullivan, two years at Leo Burnett. And then David Altman, promoted to Enterprise Relationship Director. What? That's the same as mine. You're stealing the same one. You, I, I did the same exact oh, one. I know, but I do the editing. I'm going to use mine. Ah, forget about it. Hey, Jen, do you have a shout out for us? I do. Uh, it might seem like an odd one. I have a gentleman, Aaron Pesatello, who just left Go Nimbly, but I'm very proud that he um, got a good gig over at Clary. Uh, and one of the things that I had to, probably with the great recession, or um, resignation, not the recession that's coming next, um, uh, with the uh, oh, great resignation. <laughs> I don't know. I've checked my stock market lately. It's not looking good. Um <laughs> that uh, we made the choice that the way that somebody exits your company should be as lovely as when they enter. And one of the things that I'm motivated by is creating the next generation of revenue operators. And that means that at some point they're gonna leave your company. And so I wanna celebrate that. How long was this person at your company? Uh, over a year, a year and a half. Boom. Jamie, I think you should uh, go find that person bring them over to people.ai, not yeah. Clary. Clary's obviously the inferior product, right? We don't, Clary we don't bash the, we don't bash the competition. Okay. No, right. that's a, never a good look. Um, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm just, look, the, the SaaS space is small. I always think like, man, they're, they'll, I'm always out for a boomerang. Um, people, got a home. Mm-hmm, that's right. I love it. Don't worry, Jen, you'll get grizzled soon. KG, how do you know Jen? This is literally, once again, like many of our guests, this is the first time that we've met face-to-face. And the quick story is, yeah, the quick story is that um, I have a client and the client just isn't ready to have uh, a full-born like uh, RevOps team, but they, for God's sakes, they need RevOps help. And I thought to myself, God, are there like, is there like RevOps outsourcing? Is that like a thing? And like, I, and I posted something on LinkedIn and uh, Jen or somebody from Jen's team was one of the first people to respond and be like, Hey, <laughs> it's what we do over here at go, go nimbly. And, uh, and I started looking up some of the stuff that Jen's put together. And, and uh, you know, the reality is, is that Jen happens to be, sorry, Jamie, but Jen happens to be one of the foremost experts on RevOps out there. And I'm just honored and pleased that you'd come on the show. Thank you so much, Jen, for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. That's really kind. You, you got it. Well, we're sass holes. It's going to get nasty soon. <laughs> um, what, uh, so tell, give us the two minute primer of your career. How did you get to where you are today? Yeah, uh, like a lot of people that end up turning into strategists, I started as a technologist. So the first thing I did was get really into Eloqua. I was an Eloqua consultant for years. Then Marketo came in and I went into that. And then very quickly you realize there's nothing that you can do in this one platform that isn't affecting Salesforce and the sales team. 
And so really, you know, pushed into that. I was working at the time at Blue Wolf, which then got bought by IBM. So obviously a huge Salesforce partner. And then what piqued my interest was why are sales and marketing teams having so much friction when they kind of are super aligned? Like you both want the same thing. This isn't like marketing and finance, butting heads over budget. These are two teams that want the same thing. They want more revenue and they want to convert the MQLs and they want to have great conversations. And that's true. So why is there so much friction? So then I spent the rest of my career doing sales and marketing alignment. And when we started Go Nimbly, we had the tagline of like, um, we didn't have revenue operations yet. So we talked about unifying the business stack. That's like what all of our messaging was around. And then slowly but surely, Revenue operations came up and we're like, oh, that's what we've been doing for years. Uh, and here we are. For our listeners, how would they use Go Nimbly? Like if I was going to use no Go Nimbly and I was a, a, not people AI, but I just want to sure. some other company out there, how would they engage with you and how would they move forward? Yeah, so I think there's a, a few categories depending on what inflection point you are. If you are in the early stage company, we have two products, which is RevOps Coaching. So what we're trying to do is help you accelerate decisions, not build into, uh, build yourself into a corner. And it's it's truly advisory and coaching. We're not building for you. As you get larger and larger and you're spending, you get all this funding and great money. Then we have RevOps as a service where it's essentially starting at you know 20K a month. So the customers that are using that are our Twilio's and our Zendesk's and page your duties are the big guys. And from that point, we're an extension of your team. So we're hands-on keyboard, executing, finding gaps, running your roadmap, all that good stuff. So you RevOps people, how do you like justify your existence? Non-revenue generating humans that you are. Of course, Pete has to go right for the throat. (laughs) Um, But I disagree. I think that we can generate revenue. Um, I think a a really fabulous operator is not only creating a great roadmap, like a product team would, and and is explaining to you all the problems that they're going to solve. But afterwards, they're looking back and explaining you how they increase carry capacity, how they saw that there was a problem at stage three conversion rate, and they came back and implemented a new process that increased that by 10% and influenced $5 million worth of pipeline. So in a similar way, and I, and I think we're a little ways off of, of that kind of maturity because it takes, it, it takes a lot of intentionality to do that kind of work and not be the firefighters that a lot of operators end up being. But I wouldn't say it's that different from you know, marketing attribution. For a long time, there was just no way of saying that marketing was and was not influencing revenue. I think operators are getting smarter about that messaging and making sure that they're getting that same airtime of explaining that yes, we are strategic and yes, we can influence the growth of your company. I, I just had such a hard time, Jen, you know, being at ZipRecruiter for eight years and a slew of startups since 1994. Um, first of all, didn't have the benefit of a really functional um, sales ops or rev ops team. Rev ops, as you well know, is the new you know, phrase du jour that brings in the customer success. But um but, but we had the hardest time, you know, justifying those hires. Hey, when we, you know, when we, we make a hundred thousand dollars sales hire, we're going to get $500,000 of annual recurring revenue out of that person. And like, I'm like, okay, I know what those gross margins are. I got it. Hiring a RevOps pro had been difficult. And in fact, and as a consultant, I'd love to you, you to retort. Uh, my boss said, you know, my experience with operations people is that they're like consultants, they borrow your, I'm trying to do his voice, by the way. You, yeah, they, yeah, they, you know, <laughs> he's got the cigar going. They borrow your watch to tell you the time. 
And, and, and in essence, just sort of like, yeah, there's a lot of talk and it's a lot of paperwork and a lot of stuff, mm -hmm. but they, they're not going to like roll their sleeves up and get like filthy dirty and like get shit done that actually makes um, um, an incremental impact, revenue impact on the business. And you used influence. You, you have yeah. a very calculated word that you used previously. I mean, how do you report to that? Help me understand. And Pete, the old crotchety guy. How do you, you know, help us understand how RevOps pros aren't those consultants that just come in and talk big and borrow your watch to tell you the time? Yeah. First, right, first, time first of all, <laughs> first of all, Kevin, <laughs> you ask the guy the time of day, he tells you how to build the watch. Continue. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Jen's, Jen's borrowing. <laughs> Jen wants I'm to borrow your watch. Um, there's good consultants, there's bad consultants, um, and there are individuals that are going to talk at you and, and borrow a framework and put it in front of you, and, and that's the work. Yeah. And so those experiences are built on truth. Um, I'm actually writing um, a, a piece of content that I'm going to send to you, and it, it urges me to finish it up. It's called Dear Future Client. Mm. That's about how to get the most out of a consultant and how to also do the housekeeping and the work internally so that we can be successful because the thing that I'm selling to you is that I've seen it before. You know, I've seen 25 companies do this. So I should be able to come in and solve those problems faster. Mm -hmm. um, now there's different types of consulting. There's brain work, which is a little bit of the, what you're talking about, which are your, your McKinsey's. My mom works in McKinsey. She's mm -hmm. been there for 35 years. Um, when I told her I want to work at McKinsey, she said, you're not cut out for it. Oh. Um, nice. Yeah, she said that the culture wasn't for me, that like, you know, I wasn't going to uh, thrive in this kind of like upper out intense, you know, place. And I was very offended, but she was right. Um, and, you know, there's brain work, which is just like, you're smart, go solve this problem. Um, we're a company, we're at this crazy place, come bring your best minds and help us solve that. And that's what you're paying for. What we are is what we call gray hair work, which is like, we've seen it before. Could you figure it out? Could you go through it? Maybe, but you might go the wrong way. You don't have the you know, expertise of having seen it 10 times. And quite frankly, that's how you, a lot of leaders that get hired do gray hair work, right? It's like, I do what happened at Twilio and I'm doing it now at this other company. And that's, you know, you've got your playbook and you've got your work. And then there's procedural work, which is when you outsource maybe campaign execution. Could you do it yourself? Yes, but there's not a career path for it. You're better off not thinking about it. It's the stuff that gets dropped. And so you have to know what you're buying when you're buying a consultancy so that you can get the most out of it. Because if you're expecting a different category and you pick the wrong firm, then you're not going to get what you need. And yeah, so it's about that's, expectations. Yeah. And so when you're building your revenue operations team, I actually do think it's very similar to building a services team. You have to know the shape of your organization and you have to know the type of work that's coming in. So if you look at your roadmap and it's a lot of like very easy process work, sure, go build it with some junior folks that are going to do a lot of execution. If you're mm -hmm. looking at it and you're saying we have gigantic, hairy problems, then you need to bring that seniority and probably partners. And yeah. so I, I think it takes a lot of like intentionality of knowing what it is, what your problems are and what you're building to get yeah. the most out of a team or, you know, especially a team that is their work changes all the time. Yeah. And I, uh, so if you, um, oh God, I love what you're saying because I, my clients are usually early stage and, and, you know, we do budget for 2022 and they have a, they have room for one ops hire. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I look at that and I just go, my God, you're trying to find somebody who's both strategic and tactical when there's yep. 30 people in the company. And it's hard to find somebody who's both strategic and tactical to do the work, like the execution, as well as like the frameworks yeah. that you're, you know, you're talking about there. So 
if you had a blank slate, no RevOps team at, a, at your own company or, a, or a, a company you were consulting with, what would that RevOps org chart look like? Mm. Two questions, like who's my hire? If you're, if I'm early, I'm probably hiring one or two people. So like my org chart's not really that important. Um, it's gonna be, you know, two people. I'll roll them up to my most operational C-level executive and I'm good to go. But if I'm splitting and I'm, I'm growing that team and I have to decide, I have to decide whether or not I look at it functionally or if, and that to me is like, do I want to group these individuals by uh, this is my insights team, this is my naval team, main team, this is my, my technical team, or do I want to do it by marketing sales and customer success? For me, like an org chart is something that you use at the beginning to like give clarity to the team. Like when you're doing the work, you're not often going back to that org chart to check it, to see what's going on. It's about figuring out who has authority and where and what are the relationships that need to happen within the org. So early stage, I would hire the, um, I would hire early stage, the kind of level three and up, like I would hire mid to senior level because you can outsource the execution, especially if you find people that are good at delegating. And mm. I don't even mean go to a consultant, go to Upwork, go find someone for $60 an hour. Like if you know what you need to build, like mm -hmm. just go hire someone cheap and do it and find that person that knows how to delegate. Cause the problem is not finding someone strategic and tactical. I'm strategic and tactical. I just don't want to build in Salesforce anymore. Like, yeah. I'm not going to take that job. And so it, it's not that those people don't exist, that they don't want to do that work. So you have to give them the ability. You have to know that they can delegate, which is an extremely difficult um, skill. And yeah. then you got to give them the budget to do that. Yeah. Where, should, where should RevOps live in an or like a more mature org chart? Like where, mm -hmm. where, do you, where do you think a RevOps leader or team should report into? Yeah, that's like the, the hot question. It's way more. Okay, here we go. So this is one of the, you know, very typical images. I think I write CXO here because it's like, sure, get yourself a CRO. And Gartner saying that like by 2025, 75% of companies are going to have revenue operations. And we're always talking about, um, you know, this, this CRO figurehead. I am seeing a lot of CROs that are head of sales, essentially are VPs of sales that have that title. And I don't really need every organization to have a CRO. I need you to roll up to an operational leader that is not going to be listening to the loudest voice in the room that has the authority to say, prioritize this over that. And if you have your revenue team just rolling up to a VP of sales, you're going to have an entire roadmap about your sales process and your marketing <laughs> team is going to be pissed off and your CS team is going to be pissed off. So I really just need this to be a neutral party. If you have a lovely CRO that's very operational, that is able to give the same mind to sales, marketing, customer success, beautiful. If that's a COO, beautiful. You have a director of RevOps and your company small enough where you're rolling up to a CEO, wonderful. Like for me, this decision is so much about who your people are, their skills, and how you give essentially this, I just wrote head of, I don't care what this title is. This person running your RevOps team needs authority. Mm -hmm. And that to me is the thing that we have to be super clear on, or they're just going to take orders from Wait a minute. I thought I agree. Oh, oh, I agree with everything. Wait a minute. She said authority. <laughs> I thought you RevOps people dealt on influence. Which is it? Mm. So I agree so with I, everything. You said I love there. authority. Yeah, no, I agree with everything you said there. I think the RevOps needs to be independent of the head of sales and head of marketing, or there needs mm -hmm. to be uh, an ability for that person to have a. Uh, 
not a, not an agreement voice, <laughs> like a disagreement with those people and not in fear of being fired. If you're in yeah. sales ops and you're reporting to the CRO and the CRO is doing something that you might not agree with, you can't disagree with them publicly or you're going to get fired. So right. like I always think you're not rev ops if you're reporting into that sales leader, unless that sales leader is like you just said, like more of a high profile CRO that's more less out of the weeds and more in the data and overseeing more like a CEO of a huge company. Um, sure. Objective, the, the objective. Uh, you know, we had a previous guest on here, Jen, uh, you may know him, Jeff Ignacio, who we think is amazing. I think is amazing. Yeah. He used to work for me and he actually made an argument on the show. Uh, Pete nearly lost his shit, by the way. Um, he made an argument on the show that, uh, that, um, RevOps pros could actually be CROs because of that exact dynamic, potentially. Any thoughts there? I think the friction there is, um, and it is a kind of like probably an ugly side of people, but salespeople trust sales leaders. And I just think it's very difficult to motivate and engage a team if you don't have that background. So if you're talking about a CRO who is also the VP of sales and is supposed to be there to unstick you in a very hairy enterprise level deal, like I don't actually think that operational like revenue operators are that. It's a it's a very different skill set. So finding that well-rounded person, like maybe that person exists, but I that to me would be a CRO with a VP of sales that's extremely strong. So it's almost the dynamic changed. And and they're giving that person all the authority to be able to run their sales team in the way that they need to. What is RevOps maturity? Hmm. So I think that's actually maturity on any team, the way that I see it. And, and this is a really cliche. I might make a sign next to like a live, love, left sign, which is like RevOps is like the how, right? It's like the way, it's not the goal. And yeah, we can make like little plaques. Um, where <laughs> about maturing your team and changing the way your structure, like a lot of it is the how of the work because what we're doing isn't changing. Like we talk about like, isn't it just sales ops to the new title? It's like part of it, yeah, because your roadmap is the same, but it's the change in the way that you work. It's a change in the way that you prioritize. It's a maturity that you're bringing to your team. And it is not night and day. This is not like a transition that you say, cool, I just drew up that org chart that Jen showed and like, we're good to go. Because what you need to do is drastically change the way that your team prioritizes. Do they like have a roadmap or not? Are they intentional about the work that they're doing? Are they collaborating? Like, are they actually knocking down silos? Are they prioritizing the customer? There's all these pillars in what we're saying this team needs to change and that they're no longer, I don't know, taking cases at Salesforce and changing <laughs> profiles and creating fields. And that to me is the transition. And we look for a lot of like, you know, signs. All those questions I asked you are the questions that I ask someone when they're coming in to identify like, oh, maybe they're really strong in collaboration. Like maybe they do have a really great structure on the team and they have all the authority they need, but maybe they don't actually have the analytic skill set to be able to identify where a gap exists or maybe they haven't talked to a customer in a year. Um, and that's the kind of things that we're looking for to try to move the team towards a, a more mature model where they are truly a strategic partner. From a, from a RevOps perspective, what is the least invested um, and most valuable portion that you see from other companies that you wish they would just get on board with? Oh, that's so interesting. Um, I have two answers to that. Um, one of them is probably just, uh, it's table stakes at this point to integrate your data. Um, and like, we just have to come to terms with that. What, is, what does integrate your data mean? Yeah, 
Yeah, so when we talk about silos, we're always talking about people silos. Those are the examples that come up in our brain, but data silos are the things getting in the way of your business. It's, we have, I know there's a lot of consolidation happening in the market. Like, look at how that is like a case study to look at. They are literally taking every platform that a revenue team needs and they're putting it under one umbrella. But like, we have all these disparate systems. We have data living in a million places and the investment to bring that together is high and your competitors aren't doing it. So like, I think that's an area where a lot of money's going into it and it's, it's uh, underinvested um, because it's just a very hairy problem. And then on the other side, if I talk more on the people side, it's the kind of soft parts of running a team that get dropped very quickly. It's, I think, was it Eisenhower, the, the urgent and important work uh, matrix? I think one of our presidents did. Uh, but it's the important work that isn't urgent. It's like the consistency in outbound communication. It's the consistency in like who does who didn't create a roadmap in the beginning of Q1. And right now, if you pull it up, it doesn't represent where your company is. I think there's a really like big underinvestment in that like soft part of the job. Hmm. You you mentioned HubSpot. Uh, it's uh, as as a as a platform that's really starting to. Put that all that data together. I, you know, yeah. first of all, I have very little experience. I'm an old guy, so I have very little experience with HubSpot in that platform. I know it is the marketing platform from way back when, and uh, and I've used you know Salesforce. Mm -hmm. I have a um, in the past, but I the data integration piece. Let me just yes and you. I have a client who's using a CRM platform called PipeDrive, and PipeDrive the customer success people are saying, work with the Zapier professionals to suck data out of PipeDrive to then have it integrate with AirCall and all these other uh, all these other platforms. And all I'm saying is, I just want to get the conversion rate from calls to conversations. That, that's all I want to get. And, and it's, it's really shocking. So in context now, this data integration problem that, you're, that Jamie has brought up that you have you know, highlighted, it's like, yeah, like... If we can't figure out where we are, how do we know where we're going without the without the the data? So that's a great question, Jamie. Yeah, I mean, I I think data integration. If you want to be a digital transformation and get on the bus before they leave you behind, you need the foundational layer of data to be automated as much as possible, so that you can get complete data, so you can make better predictions. Personally, I think the least invested uh, aspect in any organization, except for when you're maybe in the beginning stages, is enablement. Yeah, because yeah. I believe enablement in a lot of mature companies, the enablement team turns into more of a how do you uh, as a like, how do you get a contract and how do you fill out a contract and what do we expect from you rather than here's a sales strategy and how do I increase or how do I decrease sales cycles? Because sales cycles, to me, especially in the software business, is the killer of all software businesses. Because if it's nine to twelve months, and and you have a six month ramp time, that means really, if you think about it, that's a year and a half before you realize that that person is good or a bad hire. And and you want to be able to identify the bad hires and <laughs> and replace them as quickly as possible, especially when you're in high growth mode, because that just sucks everything out of your business. Do you agree with that, Jen? It takes in, in a sales cycle of, of nine to 12 months and a ramp of six months that it takes a year and a half to determine if you've made a, a bad AE hire or not. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. Uh, I mean, sure, there's early signs like you can see their activities and good. You can listen to their calls. You 
do like different kinds of coaching, but if what we're looking at is pipe numbers and it takes that long to see and your ramp is six months, like people have the excuses it, saying I'm ramping. If, if it takes that long, you're going to have a new CRO anyways. Oh, I, but I'm telling you in software yeah, businesses, that yeah. happens a lot. So therefore you, the, some of these guys live with poor enablement. What's the average, after- what's the average tenure of a C- CRO? Two to three years. 18 months, bro. 18 months. Just saying. Damn, that's so, why. That's why our sales stages change every 18 months. Everything <laughs> else comes in. And sales uh, strategies. Your Hyman Miller, then your Mexican. Oh, I'm so selling. sick of it. That's my all- biggest pet peeve. Oh, we have no request for new stages. It's like, all right. Okay. Yeah, depends if you're pri- private equity or not. So when did when did when did RevOps become a thing, Jen? Yeah, like the the word kind of about five years ago started kind of yeah. popping up as a as a term. Um, and the fun thing has been that in our sales cycles, it's changed from the beginning was like us trying to explain what revenue operations is. What is it? What is it? What's going on? And then it was like, why? Why should you do it with you know? And now we're in the how. Um, which is like way more fun. Like people are no longer like, I'm not going into big meetings and trying, like, actually I have one next week, but I'm not going into a lot of meetings where I have to go to executives and like pitch this idea. Um, it's through podcasts like this and the content out there and the industry is doing, we just did a SWOT analysis. Like we have an amazing opportunity that the industry is doing this work for us. We're no longer needing to do like the why of, of RevOps. And now we're getting into the space that I enjoy better, which is like, what's the playbook? Like what's the how behind this? And it's like the last year or so where we've really been able to step into that. Hey, when I was at Career Builder, we were you were somewhat doing a little bit of RevOps with your Pete, whatever it called, the Jansen Nader or whatever it was Here, called. Here's the here's the evolution. Sale, let's see, it started with Salesforce with their five free licenses. Yeah. Then Microsoft CRM came along. <laughs> For, forget it. about it. <laughs> you guys ever hear of Microsoft CRM? Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Oh, don't be a trial balloon for those guys. Now they got LinkedIn. No, it's whoever is the go-between between Salesforce or Microsoft CRM, whoever the go-between was, that was the first sacrificial lamb that went into the position. Then you had somebody from finance that would come in, that would get involved. Is that how it went, uh, Jamie? Well, I was in data. I just oversaw data and all the product and all aspects of data, but I had a finance background as well. But then it's the deal desk. It usually starts with like deal desk and sales strategies and SPIPs. And how do I, how do I change the company? What we were on the trajectory was, and you know, it was like, how do I change the com- company to be smarter about selling and get more efficient at it? That was RevOps uh, before it was called RevOps. I, I think I, I was data analytics. Well, I think it's it depends on the business cycle of the company because RevOps turns into uh, a justification team that shows why you should keep your job, right? Because it's not my group. I'm doing this. You know, my numbers are this versus a growth, uh, a company in growth mode. Th- that's just my two cents where, hey, I'm just looking for the best opportunity versus staring at an Excel, figuring out how I can keep my job. Wait, so you saying when I was at Career Builder, I was trying to figure out how to keep my job? That was the value I brought on the table. Thanks, Pete. A- absolutely. Um, 
There, uh, it's funny, you're, you're explaining one of the big signs of silo syndrome, which is you know, teams looking at their own metric and, and that being their North Star. Um, there was like a recent story that a client was telling me, which is they had to increase MQLs, right? That was what the marketing team had to do. It was the end of the quarter. So they pumped a bunch of money into Facebook ads. Cool. Their MQL number went up. The sales team pissed off. The leads were a pain in the ass. The conversion went extremely down and they didn't hit their revenue targets, but the marketing team celebrated. And so like the moment that you've got that going on, like you've got a bigger problem, which is you have this identity about like, I'm this team and this is my metric and they're going to hit it any way they can. And you guys know a lot about incentives. Obviously that incentive isn't working, but though that's an extreme story, but that's happening all the time. Um, which is like, it's this myopic view because as humans, we're very good at like staying vertically aligned. Like we can stay vertically aligned in our team, but we're terrible horizontally. But look at the CRO. It's like, oh my God, you're not in it for the long term. You're like, all right, dump the Facebook money in there. Cause if these leads don't come in, I'm fired anyways. Yeah. Right. My so, team is do. Yeah. 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 There's, that is a problem. Short-term tenure is a huge problem. If you're in it, you know, those CROs that are leaving, you know, 18 months in, it's not like they're leaving and, and hitting the uh, unemployment line. Yeah. They usually have golden parachutes that they've negotiated ahead of time. So they're leaving with millions in their pocket. Yeah. Uh, um, I think it's the CEO of Lattice that just posted that their average tenure is four years. And he was saying that um, his team hit stride at year three and four. He was like, that's when I see the best work come out of my employees. Um, and that like stopped me in my tracks. Cause like, we're not seeing that in the industry. Like my LinkedIn feed is people moving jobs all day. Uh, and so we're losing something that like, great at nine months, you start making impact and then you leave six months later. Um, so something's got to change. And I actually, maybe this is an unpopular opinion, but our equity plans have fucked us because why would I stay after 13 months? There's a reason that's the mode in SAS. You leave at 13 months because financially, I might as well get equity somewhere else and start creating this like great portfolio of stocks. Um, yeah. But like, it's going to stagnate my career eventually because I'm not going to have the experience of actually scaling anything, but <laughs> hiring those people. So. That, that's actually very insightful. If you think about it also, the PE firms are such a huge proponent. They have three-year investment strategies, which means someone comes in, it's an equity play that CRO might retire or go on to another thing. Takes them six months to hire a new one. Well, guess what? In two years, two and a half years, there's another buyout. They need to flip the portfolio. So then the CRO is like, see ya. So some of it could be right. just purely equity play is why it's 18 months, which I'm still shocked by. I know you said that before, KG. I'm still shocked that that's the average tenure. But I think some of it's self-imposed. I'd, I'd be curious to see which ones are leaving yeah. um, without equity. You know what I mean? Without it being an equity play. That'd be very yeah. interesting. It's CR, CRO regurgitation. That's all. Just, <laughs> oh, God. So, uh, what, what are some of the key tools and methods for a killer RevOps strategy? I know you have some opinions there. Yeah. The biggest thing that I want to look for is a team that has kind of a gap first mentality um, so that you're not, it's really funny the way that people come up with the work that they have to do next quarter. You get all this input from all the stakeholders, and then you go into a room and you start prioritizing that. But first you pause and you brainstorm, what else could we be doing? It's crazy how this team that's already underwater will start brainstorming that new work that they can come up with. 
And what I want to see is that they flip that strategy and you identify the gaps, the things you're working on, and then let's come up with the work. Because if I just hear we need CPQ implementation and we need to implement sales loft and we need, I just don't understand what it is that we're working on. That's a problem. And that's how most teams are executing is that there's not really the, we're fixing this problem in our pipeline or we're fixing a volume issue at the leads. And then we come up with the projects. There's this kind of want of um, coming up with a slew of interesting projects and slating those. So that, that flip to me is the biggest maturity change that you can make as a revenue operations team. And honestly, any team, right? Like that's transferable to any strategic team. But what problem are you solving? And then come up with a strategy against that. Ken, you got any tips for the uh, entrepreneurs and RevOps leaders out there besides keep your resume fresh? <laughs> uh, for for me, like early, early in your career, like I know this might be an unpopular, I believe in generalists, but I do think that you need to be a generalist with like a few depths. So like there's like a bunch of shapes, a good M shape, like you have three areas of depth that you can lean on and then go be a generalist. Like C-level executives are not people that have one depth. And so that's the career path you're going, like go learn about a few different areas and go deep early in your career. That's going to make you a better leader in the long term. So, you know, for me, I started within technology and that served me to have that baseline to be able to then um, jump off. But I do see that the generalist message is catching on. People want that. But I, I think that we're taking away from there still needs to be depth. And that does mean that you need to sit your butt down in a job for a little longer. Um, but you need to get that depth before you can become the kind of this big strategic leader. Yeah, the last thing you want to be is um, uh, a jack of all trades, master of none. But I do think a jack yeah. of all trades with a maybe a, a you know brown belt in a lot of aspects is much more valuable than um, just being a yeah. master of one. Um, question: Technology. What do you recommend? And I know it's different depending on maturity for people to think about from a tech stack per perspective? So it's actually not that different. Uh, it's funny that we talk about like tech stacks at inflection points. I work only with SaaS companies and like 90% of the tech stack is overlap. So, yes. uh, you know, it kind of cool. So you've got a Salesforce HubSpot is coming up. People are staying at HubSpot longer. HubSpot still has the, the mindset and the ICP that's, that's lower. They're not going enterprise. And I, I don't see them making moves to do that. I think they're very comfortable where they are. So great. You've got your Salesforce CRM in the middle. You've got some kind of sequencing. It's outreach and sales loft. You have some sort of like, I'm going backwards to the funnel because I've decided to do that. You have some sort of um, lead distribution. Don't build it yourself. Don't hack lead distribution. Just get a tool. They're cheap enough. Um, it used to be lean data. Maybe distribution engine was coming in there. Chili Piper just came out with a new one. And if I was lean data, I'd be scared. Um, so they're coming in and doing, you know, lead routing as well. And then you've got a marketing automation platform, HubSpot, Marketo keep coming up. I know Salesforce wants to make Pardot happen. It's not happening. Um, I, don't know. I don't know. I wish I could help you guys. Zing, Anyone from Salesforce, give me a call. Um, I, uh, so you've got kind of that piece. Um, you have a ton of add-on tools from a marketing, you know, platform perspective. Um, but the core you can do within your marketing automation platform. CPQ is coming up hotter earlier and earlier. That makes me really sad because it's like a big hairy project and it's like such a huge amount of tech debt that companies are taking on 
so early in their in in their career. Salesforce is an incredible marketing machine. I can't tell how much of it is that versus the actual need. So I think there's that. You've got some contracting um, documents. If you're going really big, you might go ironclad, but you've got a DocuSign, a PandaDoc. Um, I'm probably missing a few, but that's the, oh, some gong or chorus or conversational intelligence, you know, popped in there. And tools are bringing that within there. It's like HubSpot starting to create that as well, um, which is like the part that I'm like, they're, they're doing something smart. I feel pretty good about that tech stack. There's probably a few more that I've missed. Um, yeah. And eventually as you get big, some sort of BI platform is going to come in. And as you can see, you can understand why RevOps people have drunken tool confetti because there are so many competitors in the go-to-market space and they all overlap and do a little bit of everything. Sure. Um, my advice always is be lean. Don't let the tools drive the innovation. Have the tools respond to what you want them to do as opposed to be lean. And then know um, and get the most out of what you've already invested in. Because sometimes yeah. like you have an 18-month CRO cycle, that probably means an 18-month RevOps person, which most people sell three-year contracts, which means you're stepping in and inheriting a bunch of tools. Don't just buy new tools until you know exactly what was going on with the old tools. Because yeah. that's what causes a lot of tech debt and a lot of drunken tool confetti and a lot of finance people going, why the hell are we spending another half a million dollars on this? when you've got five of these. What actually is RevOps? Help me out. Yeah. Um, ooh, I actually have a RevOps definition, believe it or not. Um, revenue operations at the end of the day is a methodology. And I think that people forget that. It's the, the how you work. My best explanation of revenue operations versus go-to-market teams is your RevOps team or your directors, just to use a quick analogy. RevOps teams are your directors, your go-to-market team are your actors. And that's the, the relationship that I want to have between the two of them, that we're there to really define the process, to make sure that we're removing all the friction, to let the actors do their best job. In my own research, in trying to build a RevOps team at ZipRecruiter, I found that there was, because it's a new discipline um, the, and not something you go to school for, there's a lot of debate as to what RevOps should be responsible for. Should RevOps be responsible for training and, and, and com compensation plans and president's club and, and all those kinds of things? In your opinion, what teams should be reporting up into RevOps? Yeah. So, you know, the, the four pillars, and you probably have all seen this, it's kind of your actual operations or your strategy, you know, work, you've got your tools and technology work, your insights and analytics and your enablement. And it's like those four core functions, you have a one person team, ideally, you've got a unicorn that's good at all four, or you're enhancing that. If your team is growing, then you're just making sure that you've got the depth in all four of those areas to be a really great operator, because that's like what makes a great operator. The place where you're saying, like, should that team be responsible for all the things that you named? I sometimes default, we're like, where's that expertise, you know, within your organization? And, and sometimes that does fall under a sales leader. Mm -hmm. I'm, not, I'm not hoarding all the work in that way. But I think that the accountability is on that team to understand that in order for your sales team to operate well, it needs all those things to exist. I'm a little bit more fluid and like decisions can be made. And I want an executive team that's involved in, and doing that strategy work, especially if you're early on and your revenue operations team is sometimes mid-level. Sometimes you have someone with five years experience doing this. They don't have the depth to do all the projects that you, you know, just, uh, just, you know, spit off. 
And so if you do have a very strong sales leader, I want that partnership pretty deep. I found that some RevOps teams that I spoke to were like, training an initial salesperson onboarding must report up into me because if I'm responsible for shortening ramp times, I'd better be responsible for the onboarding and training of those people. And whereas I would talk to other, other teams and they're like, we got enablement, but that ain't training. So training is someplace else. And I want enablement underneath us, which is a whole different thing. Not, you know, not training. And it just occurred. It, it realized, I realized that the definitions and structures are very uh, fluid and not like defined, you know, RevOps is this period end of story. It's fluid. Like you described. All of our teams are interconnected. I actually think that's like a very false way of thinking that you don't have control over every metric that you're held accountable to. Uh, in mm. any job and it, like the way to shorten ramp might actually be to change the interview process and that lives under people ops and so i just don't i don't believe this idea that you have to have authority and ownership over everything you're held accountable to um you have to influence and create the relationships throughout the organization to be able to get your job done i think that's a little bit of a false i think that i think that's the second that. time you flip-flop between authority and influence just saying you rev ops mm. people yeah, authority. Um, I actually believe that authority needs to be pushed down to the edges of the organization as much as you can. So I want people even at the at that's a philosophy level to be able to do more and more. Uh, hey, Jen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Jen, what's the best way for our listeners to learn more about you? Oh, this is such a lame thing. It's just on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm so, so put your LinkedIn, LinkedIn up. So, All right. Yeah, get it in my DMs and we can chat. All right. Absolutely. Okay. All right, Jen, thanks for uh, coming, coming on the show. Thanks for listening to SaaS Souls. On behalf of Jamie, KG, and myself, Pete, we thank you for listening. And we ask that you give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to our newsletter and the podcast notes. And you can always buy a severe on Patreon slash SaaS Souls. We thank you for listening. Cue the music.